Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, Congress defines the stakeholders for big acquisitions at DHS. The CIO has a major role in almost every acquisition we do because today technology is part of it, right? Uh, the CFO managing costs, you know, they're responsible for the budget and executing the budget. New software rules may have an unintended consequence. One of the concerns that I have about this is it seems to add complexity the software development process. And one of the Air Force's data leaders lays out his strategy. We're driving to those ethical uh, artificial intelligence and responsible AI uh, elements. And overall, it's it's all focused on giving us the decisive military advantage uh, that we have to have to compete and win. It's Thursday, March 9th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Two IT funds are losers in the omnibus spending bill Congress has written to fund the rest of fiscal year 2022. The Technology Modernization Fund lost the $50 million the House wanted. It won't get any new money. Congress cut the IT Oversight and Reform Fund from $12.5 million last year to $8 million this year. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is a big winner, though, in the omnibus bill. It'll get $2.6 billion this year. That's more than $500 million more than last fiscal year. You can read more on the omnibus bill and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Military and civilian CIOs will lay out their strategies for the cloud at the Public Sector Innovation Summit. It's coming April 14th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Two bills to change acquisition at the Department of Homeland Security are on their way to the floor of the House of Representatives. Staff on Capitol Hill has been working on those two bills for a long time. Soraya Correa is former chief procurement officer at DHS. Soraya, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are these two bills? What's different about them? And what would they do to impact acquisition at your former agency? Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. So I'm very familiar with these two bills because they've been they've been working on these for a while. Um, first, it's important to understand what they mean by acquisition. This is not just about contracting. This is about the full acquisition lifecycle. So from the moment that you think you have a requirement to disposing of the asset or eliminating the service. So think of that full acquisition lifecycle spectrum because that's what these bills are really talking about. So the first one, which is DHS Acquisition Reform Act, that is the bill that basically codifies or clarifies and provides consistency on what the role of the chief acquisition officer is at the Department of Homeland Security. It also goes on to clarify a couple of other people's roles in in the spectrum, but it creates uh, or or it establishes that the undersecretary for management, which is a political appointee, is the chief acquisition officer of the agency. And he he or she therefore has the responsibility for reviewing all major acquisition programs. Generally, major acquisition programs are defined as 300 million or more. It also establishes the Undersecretary for Management as the lead of the Acquisition Review Board, which is a formal body that reviews these major acquisitions to ensure they're being properly managed. And that act goes on to talk a little bit about the CIO's role, very important because there's technology in pretty much everything we buy, the CFO's role, who oversees the cost estimating function and and how costs are being managed under a program. Uh, And then it also includes the Undersecretary for Strategy, Policy and Plans to make sure that the strategic priorities and initiatives of the agency are being followed. The second act, reducing acts 
or excuse me, reducing costs of DHS Acquisition Act. That one focuses more on if there are issues with the program. If one of these major acquisition programs goes into breach, it makes sure that you have the proper documentation and reporting structure, including going back and making sure that components who are managing these major acquisitions are reporting back to the chief acquisition officer or the undersecretary for management and making sure that the undersecretary for management is in turn reporting back to the secretary and Congress on what's going on. And it goes on to talk about uh, corrective action that might be taken to address the breach and any remediation plans that may be in effect. And it just vests, vests that authority with the chief acquisition officer. All right. Um, so this there's a quote from the committee that jumped out at me. These are both sponsored by uh, Republicans on the House Homeland Security Committee. The uh, DHX Acquisition Reform Act introduced by Representative Jake LaTurner of Kansas, the Reducing Cost of DHS Acquisitions Act uh, introduced by uh, Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia. And Representative LaTurner said this when these bills uh, dropped. DHS has been doing an average job at buying what it needs. The, the, them's fighting words for you, right, Soraya? I mean, that's that's kind of, that sounds to me like kind of a shot. It, it is, it is. And unfortunately, you know, they judge average, they, the big they, everybody. Yeah. yeah. They focus on what went wrong. They never focus on what went right, right? You don't read stories about, gee, you know, here's what DHS did and this is how they saved the world, well, right? Well, wait a minute. What do you think this show is for? Exactly, exactly. But and so it is a shot and 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 it's unfortunate. Look, if you want to increase accountability, increase accountability, but don't do it off the backs of people who work their butts off. Um, first of all, let's separate what we buy from how we buy. OK, you can write a great contract and still obtain the wrong product or service or product or service that doesn't work if you didn't have good requirements or if you didn't have a good evaluation strategy. I've seen many great contracts written. They were well written. There was nothing wrong with the contract. You just didn't buy the right thing or you didn't buy the thing that was most useful to the operator. So it is about looking that looking at that entire acquisition life cycle. And I applaud that, that we focus on the entire life cycle from when we start estimating the budget to when we define the requirement to how we strategize the procurement, what market research we do. How do we decide to evaluate? What are the evaluation criteria? How do we work with these vendors? How do we administer the contract? Take it through the whole life cycle. Don't just focus on the contract itself, because I've seen many well-written contracts that didn't achieve what we wanted. And I've seen some poorly written contracts that actually delivered, believe it or not, because it's all in how you do the work and how you define that requirement. And industry will tell you that as well, by the way. Industry will say, let me understand your requirement and I can deliver a solution. All right. The DHS Acquisition Reform Act that you mentioned a moment ago, you said the Undersecretary for Management would review um, acquisitions. You, you didn't say, and the legislation doesn't say, that the USM would uh, implement or execute on those acquisitions. I imagine that would still fall to your former office, the office of the chief procurement officer, oh. to do the actual stuff once the review has been conducted and, and the USM signs off. Right. What, what really happens here is the components are doing their job. The components are the program management offices, the procurement offices, the ones who actually get the day-to-day -day work done. But this puts in place the accountability, the accountability that the components are going to come up 
and brief the undersecretary for management on what they're doing, how they're doing it, what their schedules are, and how it's going. And they're going to talk about, the, again, the full life cycle, all the planning that they've done. They will be coordinating with people like the chief procurement officer, the chief financial officer, et cetera, because these are members of that acquisition review board. And then what the USM is doing on the advice, he'll have this board, which is the experts of the agency, the chief financial officer, the chief procurement officer, chief security officer, all those people play into that to provide advice and counsel to the USM so that he can approve or disapprove acquisition programs going forward. He can look at if there's a breach, remediation plans, et cetera. And he actually sets the timeline for those remediation plans coming back to him. And those decisions, important part of this is they are documented in acquisition decision memorandums. And I just wanna highlight one more thing. I guess I can say this because I'm retired. These are processes that are actually in place today. Whether they're being applied consistency, consistently, excuse me, is what I think Congress is looking at. We have the executive director of the uh, Program Accountability and Risk Management Office, or PARM, who actually manages that process for the USM, ensuring that these major acquisition programs are properly tracked, that they are coming before the acquisition review board on a periodic basis, providing updates, and that all these corrective action plans are not only brought forward and, and decisions documented in these acquisition decision memoranda, but that these actions are accomplished. Um, I was part of the acquisition review board, so I'm very familiar with the process. Was it being done as consistently as Congress would like and within the timelines that they would like? Possibly not. Uh, and I think that's what this really does. It documents a lot of what the agency has already done through management directives and other initiatives. And for that reason, then I, the next question was going to be, these all sound very reasonable to me as an outsider. Are they reasonable to you as an insider? It sounds like if their process is the agency's already doing, and this is basically codifying and formalizing that con Congress expects those process to, processes to happen. I imagine the answer to that question is probably yes, this is fairly reasonable because we're doing it already. Yeah, generally, I think it's very reasonable, you know, and I'll give the example of defining the CIO's role. The CIO has a major role in almost every acquisition we do, because today technology is a part of everything, right? Uh, the CFO managing costs, you know, they're the responsible for the budget and executing the budget. So it makes a lot of sense. So it codifies those roles. You, you might not see other roles defined in there, like the chief procurement officer or the senior procurement executive, because that's already codified in regulation, right? What the senior procurement executive does, it's already out there. It's pretty clear. But I want to remind everyone. This is not about what the senior procurement executive does. This is about what the entire team's team does. That whole CXO suite working with the components to achieve mission objectives. All right. One final question, Soraya. Uh, do these, and you can speak to this question uh, broadly or about these particular bills, whichever you choose. Um, do these committees and these uh, members and their staffs collaborate with the agencies when they're writing this legislation, does the agency get uh, uh, an opinion or a voice when these uh, bills are being written? Well, we periodically go up and brief. So they learn from us, right? They, they know what we're doing, what we're working on, and we help them understand, hopefully, if we're doing our job well, we go up and talk to them about the initiatives, the directives we're putting in place. So, so in, in that form, I'll use the word collaboration, that, that these are not done in the dark. They actually know what we're doing at the agency. They're familiar with what worked, what didn't. Of course, you have GAO that comes in and the IG, et cetera, that look at our business processes and procedures. And a lot of these things are already documented in some of our management directives. So what they do is really 
we find them. And the agency does get, if you will, a bite at the apple in the sense that we work with the staffers and we try to help them understand what we're doing. It was one of the things that I tried to do quite a bit as chief procurement officer is go up and brief them when we were doing new things or trying new initiatives or implementing new programs. And I know that my uh, my colleagues in the uh, the PARM and the program and out Program Accountability and Risk Management Office, the CFO, the CIO, all of us used to go up and, and talk to them quite a bit. Soraya Correa, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Francis. Always a pleasure. You can read more about those bills in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, coming tomorrow, the zero trust journey at one of government's newest agencies. The chief information officer at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Chris Chilbert, is here. That Daily Scoop Podcast debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Agencies will comply with a secure software development framework from the National Institute of Standards and Technology starting immediately. NIST's secure software development framework came out March 4th. Compliance with the framework is a component of President Biden's cybersecurity executive order. Mark Foreman is executive vice president at Dynamic Integrated Services. He's former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget. Mark, welcome. It's great to talk to you as always. What's your takeaway from the OMB orders, the, the mandate, and from the framework that NIST has put out itself? Welcome. Yeah, well, thank you. Great to be with you again, Francis. Uh, I think this is a good progress in terms of uh, telling, especially commercial software providers, that there are some standards for security. You know, uh, I think it's important not only to look at the NIST software factor uh, framework, but uh, this concept of what problem and how big of a problem are we looking at. NIST maintains a software vulnerability database, as you probably know. And at the height of the uh, 2019 pre-pandemic levels, there were about 45,000 products with vulnerabilities being reported per month. Now it's, it's leveled off over the last 18 months to, to roughly 12 to 11 and a half thousand per month. And they remove about 1,000 per month. So there's this, this 10 to one ratio of um, vulnerable or broken products, if you will, uh, broken in the sense of cybersecurity risk to an agency. And uh, something has to be done I think that there's been a lot of work on understanding the stuff you're buying, but this puts a good footing for going forward. You used a term there a moment ago, Mark, that I think is striking, that could potentially change the way we think about these products. You said vulnerable or broken. Vulnerable from in the mind of somebody like me who thinks about words all the time and the way to say things all the time, vulnerable sounds like, oh, that's, that's a tough situation. There's an emotional context there in my mind. Maybe I'm completely in, insane. Broken means it's broken. And I wonder if thinking about these products with vulnerabilities as thinking about them with flaws, number one, is it appropriate? And number two, is that potentially a more realistic way of looking at it? Have we been potentially using vulnerability in this context as a euphemism? Right. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think what this, this software development framework does is say, basically, you're broken. You're not following a quality process. 
All right. What does what's the implication there for agencies then that are using broken products? And what's the implication potentially for organizations that buy stuff that they know is broken or or suspect is broken? That sounds see, that's what I'm talking about, about the words that to me sounds like a potentially much bigger deal and a much worse idea than buying something or knowing now that you have something that has a vulnerability. Vulnerability sounds in to me in the vernacular like well we should probably get around to taking care of that someday something that's broken we should rip out and get rid of immediately yeah well something that's vulnerable i think you could say the same thing uh different kind of emotion maybe uh, to your point okay but the but the thing here is that to consider this lays out a framework this the nist guidance and of course the omb guidance that came out at the beginning of february said hey this is only for when you're buying software both of these use the risk management framework and tie back to the core issue in cybersecurity. if it's broken but it, i guess if we look at it like a typical product it's a cosmetic problem mm-hmm. then maybe it's not such a big issue but it's, if it's broken in a way that it puts at risk your agency operations, that's a big issue. And whether you call it vulnerable or, or broken, I think that the consistent focus has to be on what is the risk of the flaw in the software to your agency operations. Um, you wrote me a note last night when I suggested we talk about this today. And you said people at DHS pushed this concept 10 to 12 years ago. How different is this what we see today from what people started talking about that long time ago? And if this is so important to security, how did we get to a point where it takes 10 to 12 years to get something that's important for security to actually become policy? Those are two very good questions. The first, let let me address the the first part of it. Uh, If you look in the FISMA guidance and the, um, essentially the concept of an effective uh, security program, you see multiple dimensions. Again, everything comes back to understanding your risk and focusing on your risk. I think there was a a general feeling then that through things like ATOs and and then FedRAMP, that uh, there were ways to apply FISMA to these software products. And of course, for decades, we've had the, the common criteria and part of what uh, I was involved in in the Hill in the, the 1990s was syncing up the uh, intelligence community or the NSA guidance with the civilian agency guidance. And of course, DHS was involved in that as well. So progress has been made in that regard. This uh, takes it one step further to say uh, this now is a standard that the agency should be looking at when they're reviewing their products. So I don't know in terms of um, the the net effect on FISMA, how much additional impact this is going to have on making an agency an effective security program. Because you do have, I think, at the heart of the risk today, this question of interfaces. So, um, you know, we're we're in an interconnected world. The notion of everything sitting on one software application developed by one company is really hard to consider. And when you you think about that, it's probably with these mega applications, financial systems, HR, electronic medical records, 
and they too work with interfaces with other systems. So the vulnerabilities, I think, that are at the core of today's issues are at that interface between the systems. We used to call it middleware, now it's APIs. And uh, one of the concerns that I have about this is it seems to add complexity to the software development process. And anytime you add complexity, that impacts those interfaces. So uh, you can't manage a piece of the puzzle of the risk with understanding the interconnected implications for an agency. Um, and I think at the end of the day, that's, that's what OMB's got to address in that next wave, this interface risk issue. What do you think that that should look like, Mark? Uh, I think that um, uh, in addition to the, the kind of test environment and the focus on uh, ATOs at an application level, um, there needs to be more understanding and control in the CIO organizations of the API management environment is technically what you would call it. Um, with the move to the cloud and um, the move to low code, no code software, we're basically talking about a concept that years ago people used to call messaging. It's how do you connect or, or have that one application talk to another application. And that's being replaced by these low code, no code tools. I actually think that's the future of most of the government applications, likely being driven by uh, the president's management agenda, but also technology trends. We're gonna have to replace a lot of custom interfaces with uh, some standard software to implement the zero trust architecture and zero trust concepts. So, it seems like things like the standards for software development framework are good, but they're always lagging behind. So to your point, will we see the, this interface standards and low code, low code, uh, no code standards be promulgated seven or eight years from now? I hope not, but um, what do we do about that? I, I, I don't think you can take your eye off of the past vulnerabilities, but I think OMB needs to be looking at this issue, the interface issue today. Mark Foreman, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for your insight. I appreciate it. Thank you. You can read more about the new software standards in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Nominations close next Friday for the best bosses in federal IT. You can recognize the CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and other agency leaders that are driving modernization and innovation around the federal government. The list of finalists debuts March 28th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Air Force's Advanced Battle Management System will be that service's piece of the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System that supports warfighters in every environment with data. Brigadier General John Olson's one of the key players in the data organization at the Air Force and Space Force. As part of FedScoop's IT Mod Talks, he lays out what he does in all three of his jobs. I am currently the Department of the Air Force, meaning both the Air Force and the Space Force Chief Data and AI Officer, as well as I wear a couple other hats. I'm General Raymond, the Chief of Space Operations uh, Mobilization Assistant for the Space Force. And I also co-lead uh, the Joint All-Domain Command and Control and Advanced Battle Management System for the Department of the Air Force. So I think those three job titles all 
give me plenty to do. But I think what you'll find is, is the, the nexus of those three and the convergence between them is really appropriate. And I'm, I'm really excited to share some key thoughts and points on the operationalization of data and AI within the Department of the Air Force as part of the larger ecosystem within the Department of the Defense and, and, and as it's focused on our broader national security uh, imperatives. And so as we, as we look at that, uh, my focus, having newly assumed my position as the Chief Data and AI Officer just this January of 2022 here, um, is to operationalize data and prepare for AI ML readiness. And what that really means is, is as we look at business enterprise efficiency, as we look at mission operations capability, and as we look at warfighting capacity, this is our effort to bring uh, in the 21st century information age, all those capabilities to bear in a much more operationalized and actionable uh, way. And I think as we look uh, at the future, not only presently, as we see the conditions and situation in the Ukraine, as we look at the global geostrategic challenges facing us, this is absolutely an imperative. And as you've heard many of our senior leaders not just in only in the Department of Defense, but at the national level in in, in, in across the, the whole of government, and the whole of nation approach, uh, AI and data uh, are truly the key uh, to competing in the future. And that's a vitally important investment area for us today. And so I'd like to share a little bit of how we're getting that after that in the Department of the Air Force. First off is, as I mentioned, we are, you know, with 80 to 85% of AI really being uh, data preparedness, uh, you know, data integrity, data cleansing, data formatting, metadata tagging, uh, and, and a litany of activities that we call data wrangling or mungling, those are essential elements or drivers into uh, AI and ML readiness. And, and, and yet, um, I'm going to focus today more on the AI side, uh, but please know that as we take the the, the Department of the Air Force data fabric, which is really the six, uh, the six big six uh, data libraries. Those comprise Envision, uh, Vault, Unified Data Library, Elixir, Cygnus, and uh, we also tie in Advana uh, as part of that, uh, since that's an OSD operated uh, data library, but it's an integral part for our, our logistics and for our finance activities. As we look at that broad data, data fabric for the Department of the Air Force, our goal is to ensure that we have the resiliency and the robustness for store and compute and the accessibility of that data. And we use, we use the term Vaultus for those data attributes. And, and, and that's really a clever way of, of, of ensuring that it's visible, accessible, understandable, linked, transportable, uh, and, and interoperable and secure. And so that is, uh, that is easy to say, but very difficult to implement. And, and, and so as we look at the discoverability and the accessibility of, of, of data being paramount uh, for data-driven decisions and, and turning that, into, that, that data into actionable information, that's really what will lead us against a peer adversary across this geopolitical uh, environment that will lead us to decision and information advantage. And both of those are paramount in the 21st century information age. But as I mentioned, I'd like to focus today on, uh, as, as, as we look at this uh, IT mod talk here, um, focusing on AI. And, and, and I know that's a really hot topic, a lot of heat and light going on on that, but what really is AI? 
Well, as we talked about, uh, data going into it is 80 to 85% of the effort. But in its simplest form, AI is just the ability of machines to perform tasks that normally require human intelligence. And, uh, you know, as we talk about machine learning and deep learning, uh, each elements uh, of, of, of the broader AI, um, those, are, uh, those are also important attributes of our overall effort. But I'm, I'm going to keep it at a high level and, 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 and say that, um, you know, we absolutely must lead and adopt AI uh, in national security applications in order to remain our strategic position of leadership uh, and, and, and really prevail on future battlefields and, and, uh, and safeguard the international rules-based order. So these are, these are absolutely paramount for us. And, and so our, our primary goal, and we aspire to drive uh, the responsible use of, of artificial intelligence. And, and, and temporally, we're looking to be AI ready by 2025 and AI competitive by 2027, because these are the operational imperatives uh, that drive us in terms of the timeline. But, you know, as we look at delivering these capabilities for competitive military advantage to both our warfighters and our end users and our stakeholders, uh, our core objective is to create organizational efficiency and, and, and enable uh, mission impact at, at, at all echelons across, the, across this tap, tapestry. And it really is a human machine teaming um, as, as we see the modern environment requiring much more machine to machine and human on the loop type of paradigms. Um, we are committed to responsible AI and, and, and you know, responsible AI is, is, uh, is, is an important element uh, from, from uh, the, the Secretary of Defense on the uh, 26th of May in 2021 outlined in, in, in a memo uh, the foundational tenets of responsible artificial intelligence, or REI. The first is REI governance. The second is warfighter trust. Uh, the third is uh, artificial intelligence product and acquisition lifecycle. The fourth is requirements validation. And the fifth requirements uh, are responsible AI ecosystem. And, and, and last, but certainly uh, not least, maybe the most important is an AI workforce, a digitally savvy workforce. And as we have both in the Department of the Air Force, in the Air Force side and the Space Force side, having a, uh, you know, a digitally savvy and, and, and a digital service, as we outlined um, with the Chief of Space Operations, General Raymond, the vision for a digital service, uh, that, that uh, at, at the headquarters, the operations, the workforce, and the digital engineering ecosystem level is all extremely important. But for the ethical principles for AI, there's really five of them. One is being responsible, two, equitable, three, traceable, four, reliable, and five, governable. And, you know, I could, I could spend a lot of time in each of those and I encourage you to uh, really take a look at what we're, uh, what we're driving towards in those realms. But I think first and foremost, one of my early actions here in the Department of the Air Force was to create a chief responsible AI ethics officer. Lieutenant Colonel Joe Chapa is the perfect person for that role, and it's going to be an enduring role because as a, as, as a very experienced remotely piloted aircraft or RPA pilot, plus a PhD from Oxford with uh, ethics and law of armed combat uh, experience, he's the perfect guy to blend uh, the, the, the credibility of both experience and uh, incredible knowledge and wisdom and insight to engage not only within the Department of Defense and the Air Force and the Space Force, but across the government tapestry and across the best, uh, the best minds and institutions across the United States, because we really believe in this 
uh, no, we are we are absolutely uh, trying to avoid the perception of of, uh, of of killer robots and autonomous systems gone uh, gone wrong. That's absolutely antithetical to everything that we're doing. Instead, we're trying to drive decision advantage at the machine to machine speed. That's a necessity in the modern environment to compete uh, in, in 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 competition, compete, win, I should say, or succeed in competition, crisis, and conflict. So. I think that was a big, important first step. Uh, and additionally, uh, from, from our other broader uh, Department of the Air Force responsible AI initiative goals, we want to be the clear leader, um, not just within the DOD, but the best in class exemplar in the, in the world in responsible AI and ethics for autonomous systems. Given that we're responsible for airspace and cyberspace across the Department of the Air Force, I think this rings true and is absolutely important. Uh, secondly, we're looking to expand our mission capability and create that decision advantage. And those are not idle words, but actionable steps that we're going to take. And finally, it's to be AI ready by 2025 and AI competitive by 2027. And again, that's to, 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 uh, to, to be very decisive and drive that decision advantage. So that's really how we're looking at it. We're looking at it in four primary focus areas. Of course, responsible AI and what that means and several lines of effort within that. We're driving workforce development and have uh, recruitment, development, management, and 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 uh, and, and re, uh, retention of, of of those key skill sets. We're also driving AI technology and data infrastructure uh, in acquisitions and infrastructure and security. And I think a big part of that is underpinned by our enterprise IT activities, zero trust, and ICAM integral parts therein. Uh, likewise, the DevSec the DevSecOps approach mesh cloud, resilient structures, uh, edge node computing, all these things uh, as we look at the modern battlefield and the pacing adversarial challenges that we have will necessitate that we bring the very best and brightest together. The third area, or pardon me, fourth area uh, and fourth and final of, of, of our focus areas is the strategic partnerships because this is absolutely a team sport. So it's academia and industry and the joint services and our international uh, partners and allies. So Collectively, this is how we're getting after it. We're driving to those ethical uh, artificial intelligence and responsible AI uh, elements. And overall, it's, it's all focused on giving us the decisive military advantage uh, that we have to have to compete and win. And so um, that, is, that is largely a synopsis of how we're taking data, operationalizing it, not just for the business, but also for the mission operations and the warfighting capabilities enhancements that we need to succeed. And we're also driving artificial intelligence into the forefront. As we talk about this modernization journey, it is indeed a journey. Uh, there is no end to it because as we look at the, the, the FY24 POM inputs, that's going to be certainly a huge input and a huge uh, shift of, of, of thinking and investment and prioritization. But it's the beginning uh, of a continued journey. And I'm really excited to be working with a, a, a great team here in the Department of the Air Force, more broadly across the Department of Defense, and certainly across the nation in each of those areas, since this is going to take a whole of nation approach to uh, have, uh, have the success that we need at the timeline and, and with the affordability and, 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 and with the embrace that the commercial sector uh, and the academia uh, sectors truly have. And so building on our partnerships with the MIT AI Accelerator, uh, which is an integral part of our team 
Likewise, uh, across our technical and our acquisition efforts across the Department of the Air Force, the Air Force Research Laboratory, um, in our space and Air Force acquisitions, and at the field command and major, major command levels, that's how we are driving towards success in this. So I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to share a couple of the exciting thoughts and uh, compelling actions that we're driving towards here in the Department of the Air Force. And I appreciate the opportunity to continue the dialogue together because we can cooperate and graduate and win. Brigadier General John Olson of the Air Force and Space Force at FedScoop's IT Mod Talks. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Show's available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated it on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Chief Information Officer at the CFPB, Chris Childers, here tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. 